The time is now. Hello, hello, hello. This is Employment Law Now. I am still Mike Schmidt, the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment at Cozen O'Connor. Offices all around the country, but based here in our New York studios. You know, this is that time of year that I tend to get, I don't know, a little melancholy, a little bit reflective, quieter than usual. But for some reason this year, I feel a little bit more melancholy than I usually am this time of year. It's the time when I think back to what was accomplished, what wasn't accomplished in the prior 12 months. I look forward with a glasses half full sense of optimism about the new year that is upon us. And yeah, we are in a new year. That I'm never ready to be on my own Try to act numb Cause we're not getting any younger now I know it's kinda heavy sometimes Yeah, we're not getting any younger now Don't tell me that you're ready to try Cause it's 2020 So, a very happy and healthy new year to all of you and a happy fourth season of this Employment Law Now podcast. Hard to believe that we are starting volume four, our fourth season, but this is not just any new year. This is a new decade. This is 2020. This is 2020. I'm Barbara Walters and this is 2020. So the reality is, I don't know if you spent the past couple of weeks on a tropical island. Maybe you took a break from Twitter, listening to podcasts. Maybe you stopped keeping up with employment law news for a few weeks. You put your feet up with a nice pina colada, a daiquiri, maybe a mudslide. I don't know, maybe you went skiing somewhere cold. Who knows? But what I do know is I am absolutely refreshed and ready to go, and I hope you are too. I am excited about this fourth season of the podcast. I've got so many great topics that are on my list to talk to you about this year, certainly in the coming weeks with some real exciting episodes. I've got some great guests who have already committed to coming on the podcast. Word is spreading. Uh, As usual, I appreciate all of you so much for listening. 
I really appreciate and get a kick out of uh, all of the emails and the comments that I get from people who have listened to the various episodes, uh, giving me some terrific suggestions for future episodes and commenting on prior ones. Thank you so much for being loyal listeners, and hopefully I can continue to uh, educate and entertain a little bit as we continue into this fourth season. And in fact, uh, with some of the time off, uh, I came up with this new segment that I'd like to try for the podcast. It is called Hashtag Ask ELN for Employment Law Now, obviously. Hashtag Ask ELN. I want to bring you, the listeners, into the show a little bit. And what I'm going to do is each episode and on Twitter, I am going to ask a particular question each episode certainly about employment law. And then I'd like you, if you feel like it, of course, to tweet back using the hashtag, hashtag AskELN. The best answers to my question will make it on to the next episode. So if you've ever dreamed of being a star, if you've ever dreamed of having your comments, your tweets being broadcast on a podcast, this is the place and this is the time. So the first question for this new segment, hashtag AskELN. The question is, what would be the one change you would like to make to employment law if you could only make one change? That question again, what would be the one change you would make to employment law if you could only make one change? Tweet your answers to hashtag AskELN, and as I said, the best answers will make it to the next podcast episode. So what do I want to talk about today? Well, it's a new year. Uh, I like to certainly look back and, and reflect on where we've been. But more important, I think, is to talk a little bit about where we're going in the new year, where we're going in 2020. And there are 15 things that I want to point out that I think we should be watching for, 15 things that I think uh, will be coming down the pike uh, or have already started down the pike uh, so far in January that is only a few days old. So in no particular order, let's go through my list of 15. Uh, We could certainly spend an entire podcast episode on any one of these individually, and as you will see as we move through the weeks and months of 2020, we will in fact do that. I will be spending some more episodes and be bringing in certain special guests to talk about some of these issues. But I thought this would be a great first episode of the new year just to go from a 30,000-foot standpoint and give you my thoughts on what 15 issues we might want to be thinking about as we start the new year. So number one, minimum wage and overtime exemptions. You know, we've been talking a lot about that over the past few years, certainly, but 2020 is going to see some changes here, um, both on the federal level as well as in the various uh, state and local jurisdictions. The minimum wage uh, went up in a lot of locations, either on December 31st of 2019 or on New Year's Day of 2020. Certainly on the federal side, we've got new Department of Labor white-collar overtime exemptions where the salary threshold has gone up from $455 a week to a minimum requirement of $684 a week. Remember, the job duties tests were not changed, but the salary threshold did change. So you want to make sure, certainly from a federal standpoint, that you are meeting that minimum threshold if you think that your employees uh, are going to qualify, at least for the salary portion of the test, 
that they're going to qualify uh, to be exempt employees. As I always say, however, make sure you don't forget that in most states, in most states, there tends to be a higher minimum salary threshold. So you obviously do need to follow uh, the higher amount, whichever that is. If it's higher than the 400, I'm sorry, if it's higher than the $684 a week, uh, you need to follow that one in order to make sure your employees are properly exempt from a salary standpoint for both federal and state purposes. On January 15th of 2020, uh, the new Department of Labor rule clarifying which work perks uh, are able to be included in the regular rate, that will become effective as well. There's been a lot of confusion uh, over time for employers who don't know exactly how to calculate the regular rate for purposes of determining ultimately the overtime rate. Uh, and this new Department of Labor rule effective in January of 2020 will clarify uh, certain aspects aspects of that. Number two, number two, we're looking at uh, some new protected classes. I say it all the time. Sometimes it seems, and certainly in jurisdictions like New York, like California, and others as well, it seems like we're coming up with a new protected class uh, every week, if not every day. Um, we're going to continue to see, I think, guidance from agencies, and we're going to continue to see litigation over not just the traditional employment discrimination bases, but some new ones as well. Hairstyle discrimination is something that uh, became a hot topic in 2019 and I think will continue to be uh, in 2020. So hairstyle discrimination, uh, grooming policies, uh, and we will continue to get new protected classes from the various federal and state legislatures. So uh, keep an eye out for uh, what's coming down the pike in that regard and make sure that your policies, your trainings, and ultimately the implementation of your practices uh, at your companies uh, take into account the entire list of protected classes, protected characteristics uh, that the law identifies now. Issue number three as we move forward is another big one, pay equity. You know, I saw a recent uh, survey by World at Work and Corn Ferry, which said that uh, as of, I think it was 2019 still, 60% um, of employers were now conducting pay equity audits, and not just conducting them for the purpose of conducting them, but conducting them with the objective of resolving the root causes of pay inequity. So you're hearing a lot about pay equity. You're hearing a lot. You're reading a lot from vendors and from experts talking about pay equity, but you're afraid, you're a little overwhelmed, and you're afraid to just jump into the ring and start dealing with this issue. Well, I wouldn't put your heads in the sand. I wouldn't pretend that this is something that's going to go away because, again, whether it's from a government enforcement standpoint or whether it's uh, in the form of private litigation, from one employee or class of employees, pay equity is a big deal now. It's a big issue. So um, we're, we've had on the past, uh, in the past, uh, we've had guests come on talking about how to do pay equity audits, what you should be thinking about, what your first step should be. I'm going to make that a priority as well this year. 
and bring uh, bring in a couple of other guests to talk about pay equity and, and how to do pay equity audits. But it's something that should be on your radar if it's not already and something that you should be thinking about uh, talking to some outside uh, experts, uh, both legal and non-legal, about uh, making sure that your company is doing the right thing in that area. Number four, uh, the NLRB. And the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, continues to be active. And, and it's a little frustrating. You know, I do represent, my firm tends to represent the employer and management side of labor and employment issues. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't try to see things objectively uh, and try to see sort of the fairness and unfairness of um, regulation and specifically the regulation of labor and employment and uh, workplace rules. And one of the things that I know I have expressed on this podcast, uh, and at whichever side of the aisle you're on, you represent management, you represent employees, you're uh, somewhat agnostic and in the middle, uh, I think it's only fair to say that it's frustrating when you're trying to advise people on how to behave when the rules of engagement, the rules for that behavior change, maybe not year to year, but political administration to political administration. And we are seeing a lot of that. You know, you had your rules. So many people called them pro-employee rules under the Obama administration, NLRB. And now we are starting to see a lot more action since President Trump uh, came into office and certainly throughout the uh, first term of President Trump's Republican administration, where the NLRB is coming at us with revised rules, scrapping a lot of things that the Obama uh, administration board came up with and sort of shifting things a little bit more to the pro-management, pro-employer side. Uh, and one of the things that it did recently uh, is revised its representation elections rules uh, that'll be effective uh, in April of 2020, uh, right before the holidays, right before these past holidays, the NLRB issued new regulations governing the union election process. Now, it didn't completely get rid of the Obama administration uh, board election regulations, um, but these do change the process quite a bit to be a little bit more, I would say, employer friendly. For example, it's giving more time for employers to campaign to employee eligible voters. Essentially, a lot of the rules, procedurally and substantively, uh, will get rid of what was referred to as the quickie election rules uh, that were previously uh, issued uh, and will make the process perhaps a little bit uh, more extended and allow for employers uh, to be able to uh, get some more things accomplished during the election process. So uh, watch out for those, certainly if you are in a unionized facility, um, watch out for those becoming effective this year. That's issue number four. Issue number five, medical and recreational marijuana. So 33 states, as of right now, say that marijuana use is lawful in some capacity. Ten states and the District of Columbia allow both medical and recreational use. Illinois became the 11th state, uh, effective on New Year's Day 2020. And many statutes, many jurisdictions, I'm sorry, many states and many jurisdictions actually prohibit pre-employment testing for marijuana, which is something I think that you are going to continue to see. So this will be 
and continue to be a real hot issue as we continue to move through 2020. It's a fascinating one because, again, as you might have heard, marijuana use, uh, marijuana possession is still illegal as a matter of federal law, right? It is still an illegal substance under federal law. So it's just really a question of whether the federal government is going to actively police this or is it going to, as has been done in the past, continue essentially to look the other way and defer to states and how the states are going to treat marijuana use and marijuana possession. But so putting the federal aspect of this aside, as I said, um, the uh, medical and recreational use of marijuana is something that states have gotten in the business of uh, regulating, and they will continue to do so as we move in 2020. So if you are in a jurisdiction, uh, maybe you're in more than one jurisdiction, but whatever jurisdictions you are in and operating, wherever you have employees, whether it's about pre-employment testing, whether it's about uh, current employees uh, who may have an issue uh, that you believe with marijuana, you need to consult uh, your laws, your regulations. You need to look at what's going on in your jurisdictions because so much is changing and so much will continue to change as we move through the year. Issue number six. We talked about union elections. Let's talk about sort of political, more general elections. We are in an election year, 2020. And we have been talking a lot the past few years about politics in the workplace. But as we get closer to Election Day 2020 this November, uh, I think things are going to ramp up a bit. Employees individually and in groups are going to be bringing their political thoughts uh, into the workplace around the water cooler, maybe the physical water cooler, but also the uh, virtual water cooler. And by that, I mean social media and emails and texts and direct messaging, all of that great stuff. So we need to be cognizant of the appropriate balance. On the one hand, employers, sure, you have the right to make reasonable policies, uh, to allow for a productive and safe workplace. On the other hand, whether it's a matter of free speech in the public setting or it's a matter of morale and not trying to be too George Orwellian uh, when it comes to monitoring what your employees do on the job, you want to allow for some discourse and, and discussion as long as it doesn't get out of hand. And that last part, the as long as it doesn't get out of hand part, is really what you need to be concerned about. So you need to sit back and, and think, what kind of workplace do you have? Do your employees tend to bring their political views into the workplace? And if they do, do we understand as a workplace where the appropriate lines are? You know, it's one thing to talk about and have an adult discussion about uh, Middle East and what's going on in the Middle East uh, for good or for bad from a political standpoint. But if that were to carry into sort of harassing or discriminatory remarks uh, about certain nationalities, certain religious views uh, coming out of that kind of discussion, that's where it may be a problem. And that's where people might feel as if they are the victim of harassment or discrimination. Um, and you need to be able to nip those things in the bud by making sure you have appropriate policies and practices in place. Make sure that those policies and practices are communicated to your workplace and that the supervisors and managers who are in the trenches, much like I say when it comes to you know sexual harassment and, and other forms of harassment, when it comes to politics and political discussion, you want to make sure that 
your supervisors and managers understand what is appropriate and what may not be appropriate. Number seven, and this is, I guess, related a little bit to the pay equity point that I made a few minutes ago, salary history bans. You know, salary history bans did come out of a desire to eradicate pay inequity in some respects. The premise being that if an employer is allowed to ask an applicant uh, about prior salary history, then to the extent that there was pay inequity at a prior place of employment, that inequity just continues to perpetuate itself as each subsequent employer bases uh, salary decisions on prior unfair salaries. So, so many uh, states and local jurisdictions uh, have enacted salary history bans where, you know, it's okay if the applicant voluntarily discloses it, but without that, a company is not allowed to ask for salary history, can't rely on salary history, and cannot certainly retaliate or discriminate against somebody uh, based on their refusal to give a prior salary history. Illinois and Alabama, just to give you some examples for those listeners in Illinois and Alabama, um, they had salary history bans effective in September of 2019. New York State and New Jersey laws go into effect this new year in January 2020. And for those of you who are sitting back and saying to yourself, well, I don't have to worry about it because my state and my city don't have salary history bans, let's see if you're still sitting back saying the same thing uh, a year from now, maybe even a quarter from now, because I suspect that this trend will continue as we continue through 2020. Issue number eight. And we are, I guess, halfway to 15. I guess seven and a half was technically halfway. But issue number eight, uh, arbitration. That's not going away anytime soon. So much has been made about California Assembly Bill 51, also referred to as AB 51. Um, it was supposed to start January 1st, 2020, and the law in California, a pretty progressive one, uh, stated that you can't require arbitration as a condition of employment. You can't threaten or retaliate against applicants or current employees for refusing to consent to arbitration. But right before that statute was supposed to go into um, being, federal judge right before New Year's issued a temporary restraining order, a TRO, finding that serious questions existed about whether that California statute would be preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act, the FAA. So more to be seen, more to be heard, more to be written about on this issue. But the point is, and the takeaway is, a lot is going on in this world of arbitration where states and cities are trying to get into the business of getting rid of arbitration agreements, whether it's sexual harassment claims or more broadly, all kinds of employment discrimination or harassment claims. You do have statutes that have popped up in other places, New York being an example, where you also had one federal court just this past June of 2019, uh, on a similar basis, find that the New York anti-arbitration regulation was in fact preempted by federal law, the FAA. And now, as I said, right before New Year's, California has done the same thing. We'll see what happens there. 
So let's stay in California for a moment uh, for issue number nine, and that is this notion of independent contractor status. Wow, are you getting tired of talking about that? Well, uh, rest up because there's going to be more of that in 2020. Whether an individual is properly classified as an independent contractor or an employee and all of the implications that come with that, California Regulation AB5, there also was a TRO, a temporary restraining order, issued sort of partially um, when it comes to uh, certain uh, industry out there, the trucking industry. Uh, it's not clear that the um, restraining order uh, prohibits the enforcement of that statute for all other industries, the gig economy uh, and the like. Um, but there's a lot of um, uncertainty when it comes to AB5, California Assembly Bill 5, uh, dealing with the independent contractor status. And you should not only watch that, see how that plays out over the next few weeks uh, if you have operations in California or you're thinking about uh, having some or all of your operations in California. But you need to keep your ears open on this issue as well because this too is spreading around the country. Uh, for those of you in or around New York who just heard Governor Cuomo talk about his priorities and his agenda and the new budget, uh, you heard him spend a lot of time talking about wanting to follow in the footsteps of this California AB5 uh, and come up with an independent contractor bill and legislation that he would ultimately sign. We'll see how quickly that moves. Um, but again, it's just an issue that you need to be thinking about, particularly if you are in an industry or if you are uh, in an organization where uh, you engage a lot of folks who you classify and pay and treat as independent contractors. Number 10, we're going to go back to the NLRB. They weren't just busy revising the uh, election rules, but they've also been busy, as I started to say before, sort of reversing course from where the Democratic board was coming out and really uh, frightening a lot of employers for the past few years. So two issues that they just reversed course on right before the new year. Employers can now prohibit employees from using company email for non-business purposes, as long as it's not being done in a discriminatory fashion. That wasn't the rule in the Democratic uh, board setting over the past few years, but now we've reversed course and the NLRB says that employers can prohibit employees from using company email for non-business purposes, as long as it is not a discriminatory purpose. And then secondly, employers can require confidentiality during open HR investigations as long as the requirement lasts only as long as the investigation is being conducted. Again, through everybody in a tizzy when the uh, Obama administration board said, nope, it will violate the National Labor Relations Act if you companies tell people that they can't talk about investigations that are going on. Well, what? We, we've all been operating under the premise that we can keep things confidential as long as it's practical to do so. NLRB threw everybody in a tizzy and said you couldn't do it, but now they've reversed course. Employers can require confidentiality during open HR investigations as long as that confidentiality requirement lasts only as long as the investigation lasts. 
So those are just two examples of them reversing course. Issue number 10 for me is stay tuned because we will continue to see, I believe, uh, this uh, Trump administration, NLRB, continue to issue what many will deem to be pro-employer, employer-friendly rules, either new ones or continuing to reverse course from the prior more pro-employee rules. What happens if the Democrats win the White House this November? Well, that'll make for some interesting end-of-the-year, early 2020 podcast episodes for sure, as the political winds continue to shift. Issue number 11, data analytics, artificial intelligence. Wow, as I said before, I could spend an entire episode on just that issue. And in fact, hint, 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 somebody will be joining me very soon on the podcast to talk about that issue. In the meantime, notwithstanding that cute little tease, data analytics and artificial intelligence, something that if you have not been following, you need to at least have some surface familiarity, some surface comfort about the issue, because it will continue to be written about, spoken about, discussed as a means for employers to um, recruit and interview and ultimately hire applicants for employment facial recognition software video interviews there's all kinds of stuff that if you just google artificial intelligence in recruiting data analytics in recruiting you could spend days and weeks sifting through everything that you find but that's an issue that i think you should put on your little list of things that mike told me to keep an eye out for because in 2020 the use of data analytics and artificial intelligence in the recruitment process is going to be something that we're going to be hearing about a lot not just from a practice standpoint what should companies do what shouldn't they do but also i suspect from a regulatory standpoint that either the federal government or the state and local governments are going to get into the business of regulating these processes. Number 12, whistleblowers, whistleblowers, whistleblowers. We're going to hear a lot more from a lot more whistleblowers, I predict, in 2020 and in the coming years on a whole range of issues, whether it's health and safety issues, whether it's financial fraud and, you know, socks and Dodd-Frank whistleblowers. I think you're going to see uh, a lot more from the courts further defining and refining uh, various terms of art that people have been litigating over the last couple of years. Who's covered specifically by these whistleblower provisions? How expansive are these whistleblower provisions going to be? Uh, you're going to hear a little bit more about that in the coming months I believe. Keep that on your radar. Number 12. Sorry, that was number 12. Number 13, state leave laws. Wow, that gets confusing, doesn't it? What do we look to for our source on how much leave we have to provide? Does it have to be paid leave? Does it have to be uh, unpaid leave? How long can it be consecutive? Can it be concurrent? Well, it was one thing when the confusion uh, was just prompted by the one FMLA on the federal side, but now, wow, all these states are coming aboard with family leave, with sick leave. Whew, it gets complicated, but that's why we're here at Employment Law Now, to help you through the complicated. 
But it is issue number 13, and I do want you to keep this on your radar. To the extent you're not familiar with the state and local leave laws that exist in your jurisdiction, uh, I recommend that you do so. Um, to the extent that you're not as familiar, not as comfortable with how all of the various and myriad of leave laws uh, apply to a specific situation and overlap, um, you should develop some comfort level there in your particular jurisdiction where you operate um, because these are claims that are coming up and we're seeing a lot more of them people making a lot more disability related claims medical condition related claims we're just seeing from an HR perspective uh, many more employees uh, coming to HR needing time off asking for time off for a whole litany of different reasons so it's important that you recognize uh, the need to develop a familiarity with all of the leave laws on the federal, state, and local sides that might apply to these situations so that you can be correct in how you implement your practices. Uh, number Along those lines, um, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the notion of paid FMLA. Um, certainly there uh, have been initiatives on the federal side to um, revise and amend the FMLA to require paid uh, time off. Um, you're going to see more and hear more about that as well. You know, regardless of whether there's regulation for that, uh, I am seeing that more employers are doing it voluntarily. In fact, uh, there was a recent Mercer study that I saw where 40% of United States employers now offer paid leave for both parents. For both parents. It used to be that you would uh, distinguish between the parents based on who's a caregiver, who's not a caregiver. That was, you know, rife with all kinds of uh, issues and claims of discrimination on a gender basis. So many companies now are foregoing this caregiver status issue. Uh, they are not distinguishing between you know male and female, who's a caregiver, who's not. Uh, they're also extending the number of weeks uh, that they will be providing and offering paid leave. So it's something that you might want to look at if you haven't already uh, for how your company is dealing with this notion of leave and paid leave and paid time off and what are the reasons that you are allowing leave to be used. Number 14, non-compete agreements. Non-compete agreements. We are going to, I suspect, hear and see a lot more about non-compete agreements as we continue through 2020. The legislatures in the various states are not leaving it to the courts anymore. Maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing, I don't know. I, to me, the issue of non-competes, restrictive covenants, non-solicits, it's a challenging one because you can have the same set of facts go into the same courthouse, the same courthouse, and you can have different outcomes depending on which judge you get in the same courthouse. There's not always a rhyme or a reason to what the outcome is going to be for a particular non-compete or non-solicit case. And again, that makes it impossible to advise people, both employers and employees, on how to behave, what to do, what should you spend your time enforcing, what should you not spend your time looking to enforce. So maybe it's a good thing that we're seeing a lot of statutes now, a lot of new laws come up in this area where they're being a lot more specific and a lot more clear about who can be subject to a non-compete agreement, what 
things have to be stated in the non-compete agreement? What is the process that has to take place for a non-compete agreement to be enforceable? Do you need to be giving additional consideration either at the time of hire or for current employees in order for it to be enforceable? Do you have to pay the individual and pay them a certain amount of money during the restricted period? All of these things we're starting to see addressed in various statutes. And I think you will continue to see not only an increase in the number of jurisdictions that come up with these kinds of regulations, but also a bigger push to distinguish between higher wage workers and lower wage workers, where it's the lower wage workers who are no longer going to be allowed to be subject to restrictive covenant agreements. And then lastly, number 15, and again, this was in no particular order, um, because by no means should I be suggesting that this is uh, all the way down at the bottom of anyone's list, but number 15 of my list of things to think about for 2020, the continuation of the Me Too movement and all of its implications. What do I mean by all of its implications? The Me Too movement is going to continue to have an impact on the following, on lawsuits, not only by women who are filing lawsuits, but by an increase in lawsuits brought by men who believe that they are unfairly being disciplined or unfairly being terminated because companies were so afraid from allegations brought by women that they were trigger happy in terminating male employees without doing any kind of investigation um, or without um, seemingly uh, asking for the male's side of the story. So lawsuits are going to be impacted by the Me Too movement as we continue through 2020. Trials, not many employment law cases ultimately go to trial, but for those that do, and for those sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, sexual assault cases that go to trial, there will be an impact on the jurors that you get, the jury of your peer, who are going to be sitting and uh, serving as the fact finders and ultimate arbiters of these claims based on all of the Me Too things that they will have been hearing about, reading about, thinking about prior to their jury service. The Me Too movement will continue to have uh, a tremendous impact on workplace investigations, terminations, discipline, legislative responses. We will continue to see, I predict, more state and local legislatures, and maybe even on the federal side when, when they decide to get some things done, responses to the Me Too movement, whether it has to do with arbitration of harassment cases, whether it has to do with confidentiality provisions still. Uh, we've seen that so far a little bit. Um, I think we're going to see some expanded regulation when it comes to confidentiality provisions and arbitration provisions. Sexual harassment training. So many more jurisdictions are now requiring harassment training be done every year, every two years, live, uh, by video, with all kinds of content requirements contained in there. Um, so I think we will see, as I said, continuing through 2020 into a new year, that the Me Too movement and everything that has gone on in the past couple of years will continue to have a real impact on your organizations, uh, on HR, and uh, certainly on employment law and you know disputes between employers and employees. So that's it in a nutshell. Hard to believe that I can get through 15 
issues in under 40 minutes, but that's what I tried to do, and it's really just to give you a little bit of a taste, a little bit of a flavor. As I said, there'll be much more time to dive into these issues uh, in more detail, get into the weeds a little bit more, whether it's me, whether it's with the help of some great guests that I have coming up. Um, but I wanted to just give you my thoughts on this first episode of the new year of some hot topics that I think will continue to be hot, things that you should be thinking about and your companies should be thinking about as you move through 2020 and a new year. But that is all the time I have for today. Um, once again, I can't thank you enough for listening. Uh, I hope I was able to uh, give you a little bit of good tidbits, a little good information to bring back to your companies. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.